we get tonight to celebrate our journey through First Timothy. Now, maybe this is your first time ever in this building, in which case, welcome. We're ending First Timothy tonight. I know you've probably heard about it from me four times so far. Okay, so we what we typically do as a church is we we go a slow burn on on our way through each letter or scroll in the scriptures and so this one we started i believe in around august september time frame and we have been going through this this letter that has only six chapters and just really diving deep into it and because of that well we have the opportunity to anytime we are opening up the scriptures and especially when we have completed a segment of the scriptures say a letter like First Timothy, we have the opportunity to look back and to reflect and to celebrate all that we have discovered throughout it, which is why as you were coming in, there were a few surprises and delights that you might have enjoyed. That was out of an effort so that we would see that every time we get to come together, sit under the scriptures, we get to hear God's words, and we get to leave forever changed by them. That's the power of what his word does, not what I say, not what anyone else says, but what his holy words say. And so, so with that in mind tonight, we're going to be reflecting, but we're also going to be celebrating as we go through. And we're going to conclude this letter by reflecting on the major theme of this letter. The major theme of this letter is the aim of love. It's the aim of, okay, let's try again. The aim of, there it is. Okay, great. So a major theme of this letter was the aim of Good. You're getting it. Okay. Everything that we are called to do as followers of Jesus is meant to stem from the aim of... You guys are good? Wow. You guys really know this book. That's awesome. I love it. All right. See, it's... And that's important. Like, that should be ingrained in your brain and in your heart. The aim of the life with Jesus is love. Love. Not being right more smart than others, not about getting personal attention or glory, not about becoming well-liked or respected, not about gaining more power or authority. The aim is love. If you remember way back when we started this letter, we talked about about how different the, the biblical understanding of love is in the world around us. We talked about true love, according to the scriptures, is is uh, a great uh, name to go with it is an understanding of a divine biblical love. A divine biblical love. See, divine biblical love is the self-sacrificial love that is rooted in what we know to be good, right, and true. It's not rooted in our emotional well-being, but it ultimately directs even our emotional context as we dwell and live out this kind of divine biblical love. And that's very different than our modern understanding of love and not to be overly simplistic, but oftentimes what I desire and what the culture around us kind of discusses when we talk about love is love is the good feeling that someone or something makes you feel. So for example, I love tacos. I really love tacos. I don't love tacos theoretically, I don't love them self-sacrificially. I love them because when I eat them, it makes me feel good, right? And then we do the same thing with the relationships in our lives. When we say, I, I love you, what we often mean is, I love the way that I feel when I'm hanging out with you. That's hard, right? 
Now we can find, and, and with that in mind, what we can find is it becomes offensively unloving when we hear or discover something that doesn't produce that good feeling within us. See why that's so important to understand? Because when a friend brings a word into your life that it's not what you want to hear in the moment, you don't feel love for them. You're not feeling a good feeling. So then you're like, uh, and if they keep doing it, then you're like, I don't know if I love this person. See, we are called to hold on to the aim of love, but not a love that is dictated by emotions, but a love that captivates everything, including our emotions, by what is good, right, and true. So holding on to the aim of love is essential in our lives. And it was essential for the church that this letter was meant to be proclaimed over. Because this letter, the letter of 1 Timothy, was written from one individual, a guy named Paul, to another individual, a guy named Timothy, who he had invested his life into, who he had called to go and pastor and shepherd this church in a city called Ephesus. And in this church, there were false teachers that we have talked about a lot within their context who were not rooted in love. Instead, they were rooted in a deep desire to make themselves a big deal. Like they walked around like that, like popped out on chest, like making sure that everyone could see how awesome they were, how smart they were. They desired to be a big deal by claiming a secret and special knowledge. You know what I got. Do you ever get that feeling when you, when you, when you have some insider knowledge on something and and you kind of feel that inside. You're like, yeah, other people want to know what I know right now. And that's what these individuals were doing. And they were manipulating others. And what Paul says is, no, they don't understand knowledge. They understand nothing because it's not in line with God's wisdom. It's not in line with God's love and heart. Now, isn't that, that though, what these false teachers are doing, isn't that kind of natural to us as human beings? We want to prove ourselves. I do. We want to prove ourselves to ourselves and also to other people of how right we are and how wrong those who were unenlightened are, right? Now, these same tendencies arise in my heart, and I'd imagine yours as well. We want to root ourselves more in our personal understanding of what is loving, good, or right rather than God's. And we agree with God's whenever they agree with us. But if they don't agree with us, then we're like, I win. But here's the difficulty. When we trust our understanding over God's, we question God's goodness and greatness at fundamental levels, which are core for our faith in him. And if it doesn't happen immediately, it happens in a slow fade over time. Now that totally makes sense. If God is not who the scriptures say he is, if he's not, then, then the Bible's as good as a grab bag of clever saying sometimes. You just discard the stuff that you don't like. But what if he really is who the scriptures say he is? How should that change our minds, our hearts, and the way that we perceive the world around us? So tonight we conclude this transformative letter written by a simple teacher named Paul to a simple disciple named Timothy for the benefit of a church that's all the way on the side of the world almost 2,000 years ago but he did it under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And let's see what insights the Spirit of God would seek to impart into our lives, into our hearts tonight as we conclude this letter. So if you want to go ahead and open up your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
We'll finish with verse 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Timothy, guard the deposit that was entrusted to you. Okay, let's pause there. Final words are a big deal, right? When you write a letter, if any of you still write letters or cards, I don't know. I, I really don't very often, but sometimes you do. Uh, final words are a big deal. When you have that last little bit of margin in the card, like you want to make sure you get your entire heart across in that moment. And that's what Tim, that's what Paul's doing to Timothy here. Timothy, guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. So the first question we have to ask is then what's the deposit? Because he's not super clear right here. Now, what's interesting is he's using financial language, which ties in nicely, if you were with us last week, as we were talking about what came right before this, which is the importance of utilizing whatever wealth that God has given you to demonstrate love for God and love for people, to be generous. And so in that, in that passage that we covered last week, you could kind of sum it up and don't focus your attention on guarding your earthly deposit. Don't, that's not where you should put your focus. You should live generously. But now Paul's going to write about a different kind of deposit. What we can refer to as a kingdom deposit. Now the kingdom deposit is the down payment of faith that lives within all who follow Jesus, all who have believed in the core of who God is and what he has done through Jesus. It is our faith down payment that is made possible because of the gospel of Jesus. See, the gospel, and you've probably heard this before, but I want you to open up your hearts and minds to hear this now. The gospel is truly good news, not half-hearted news, not okay news, good news. And not good because it's a little less than great. Good because at its core, it's good. It's pure it's good news that the king of the cosmos took on human flesh, dwelt among us, and laid down his own life to redeem and restore humanity and all of creation back to himself. It's good news that for all those who come to Jesus, they are adopted into his forever family. They are given their truest identity. They are given renewed purpose. They are transformed from the inside out. And they are empowered by the Spirit of God to live more and more and more like Jesus. That's the gospel. That we can turn away, we can repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And see, this is simply a deposit because one day the kingdom of heaven will come permanently to engulf the earth. And in that moment, the deposit of faith is no longer needed because the riches of the kingdom has come. So guard the, de- guard the deposit. If you are a follower of Jesus, it's vital that every time you hear this good news, that you allow it to penetrate your attention and captivate your heart and your mind by its beautiful truths. We need to guard the deposit inside of us. If you are here tonight and you are a follower of Jesus, we, you, me, need to guard the deposit inside of you. Now, why? Why do we need to guard the deposit? According to the scriptures, we have a spiritual enemy. He goes by many names. 
most oftenly referred to as the Satan. And he has three desires, and none of them are fun. Kill, steal, destroy. Now, which deposit do you think he is coming after to kill, steal, and destroy for those who follow Jesus? Is, he, is, he, is his main deposit that he wants to kill, steal, and destroy your finances, your health, your relationships? No. No. Now, he might come after those realities, but if he does, it's because he's eyeing something bigger. He's trying to kill, steal, and destroy something else. Think of the Old Testament story of Job. Thousands of years ago, a man named Job was considered righteous in God's eyes, and he had everything that any, any human could possibly desire. Uh, he was morally upright. He, was, uh, he had a, a thriving marriage and family life. He had good friends, and he had all the wealth and resources he could ever need, and he had good health. And so the Satan begins to attack him. He tries to kill, steal, and destroy. And he, one by one, dismantles all of these realities in his life. He goes after all these different deposits. He goes after his, uh, his herds and destroys his business. He goes after his family. He goes after his friends. He goes after his body. He's covered from the crown of his head to the bottom of his feet in sores. But Satan wasn't doing that because he was like, I really just want to mess with this guy. He was trying to kill, steal, and destroy his trust, his faith in the God of the universe. He wanted to cause Job to doubt, to give up, to surrender. And see, this is what our enemy does. He might attack those different realities in our life, but what he is ultimately going after is the kingdom deposit within us. What he seeks to do is bring confusion and chaos both in our hearts and our minds. Now, we seek an understanding of both love and knowledge that feels more right than God's, right? It's that whole human thing. And our spiritual enemy loves that. He loves that thinking because if we truly believe that we love better and that we know better than God, then why would we bother following him? That means we're a better God than he is. So it's important that we depop, that we guard the deposit entrusted to us. But how do we guard the deposit? Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. I personally like the Eric quotes in the ESV. I, I don't know if when Paul was uh, dictating this to a scribe, if he went like this knowledge, you know? Um, but I, I, I like that because remember, this is a church that has been filled with individuals who are leading others away from faith in the gospel through a bunch of false teaching. They've been speculating about the true meanings of the genealogies found in Genesis. They have been claiming a bunch of nonsense that is contradicting the scriptures. And along the way, for good measure, they've been building up a personal kingdom for themselves of influence and wealth. They've been scheming on the rich to build up their own platforms. But here's why I like the whole air quotes, what is falsely called knowledge. Because God's not anti-knowledge. He's not. He created the world. He likes structure. He knows what he's up to. But what God is, he's is definitely anti-false knowledge. 
So Paul writes here about the importance of not giving room for these false beliefs to breathe within their context. This false knowledge is leading others to, as he puts here, to swerve away from their faith. Avoid irreverent babble. So that's what we're supposed to do. How do you not swerve from the faith? You guard the deposit trust to you. What's a part of that? You avoid irreverent babble. That could also be translated as godless chatter. That's a little bit more visceral in my mind's eye for this. Godless chatter. This is what happens when we are using our words and joining into conversations in ways that are not demonstrating love for God and love for people. When we are speaking in ways that is meant to cause doubt, frustration, disunity, creating space in our hearts and in others to believe realities that are opposite of the truth. That is what these false teachers have been up to. Now, we can become so enraptured that by worldviews that counter the scriptures without noticing that they are representing a different understanding of what is true than what the scriptures articulate. Oftentimes, we Christians, we can, in the Christian world, become so laser-focused, though, on correcting the worldview of others. But God is much more concerned in what is happening in your heart than what any one of us are doing in the world around us. Because who is he talking to? Timothy. Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Side note, Timothy has been hanging out with Paul for the most of the last decade, discipled by Paul. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament of the Bible. He's kind of a big deal from a biblical standpoint. Like if you, you would think that you would gain all this knowledge from Paul, absolutely, that's Timothy. And yet Timothy needs to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to him. Because even he, even us, every one of us are not immune to different thought patterns, worldviews, understandings of what is true. So now think right now about which popular worldviews you've been embracing. Okay, I get it. That's kind of like a big question. So let's, let's drill down a little bit. Look, look and think for a moment about what you consume. What media do you consume? What entertainment do you consume? Think about how you speak. Are those realities more influenced from what is good, right, and true in the scriptures or from the world around you? When you talk about politics or social issues, are you more likely to repeat, repeat phrases that come from either conservative or progressive podcasts and articles? Or are you allowing your heart and your mind to be altered by the truth of the word of God? And allow that to be the foundation for everything else. The filter that you can process any, any thought, any worldview, any article, any podcast. To root yourself so deeply in God's understanding of what is true that your thoughts, your actions, and your words are transformed by it. You see, it's not just in the non-Christian world. It's also within the church. Hence why Paul's writing this, because he's not correcting the worldview of the world around him, because the world has always had worldviews that are counter to the scriptures, counter to the way of Jesus. That's, that's the human condition, right? Like that is right out of the garden kind of stuff is the immediate impulse is to start creating an understanding that fits our own desires. But Paul's writing about the church that there were influences in the church that were, that were creating these false knowledges within the body. 
Now, there are plenty of influencers who write books and put out content today that even have Jesus' name and likeness attached to it. But they are so easily teaching different knowledge of who Jesus is, what God desires for you, and who we are. So it's important, not that we like put our fingers in our ear whenever it's not the Bible. That's not it. It's that we spend that we spend time trusting and believing what is in the scripture so that when we get anything else, we are able to go to those other sources and pick out what we like or what we think lines up with what we see in the scriptures lines up with truth, and we discard the rest. We have an understanding. But what happens so often is we look to the world around us and their sources and books and other realities, and we process those understandings of truth. And then we look to the Bible and we see that as a buffet line where we take what we like and discard what we don't. Now, this is why there's an important area of study within biblical beliefs called apologetics. Now, maybe you've heard of apologetics before, but apologetics is essentially the study, the study of b- biblical reasoning, okay? It's asking the hard questions about who God is and what he has done. Not to offer quick answers, but to be able to, as Peter would write in the letter of 1 Peter, to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. See, what we do, what a The point of apologetics is it's not about being able to go in debates, to be able to own people on the internet or about being so much smarter than all the silly heads in your break room. It's not for that. It's about guarding the kingdom deposit within us, not just by avoiding false knowledge, but by filling ourselves up with what is true knowledge, being prepared to offer a reasoned response to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. You know what I love about that? It starts that other people can notice there's a hope within you. And when they see that, when our genuine joy and hope is rooted in this kingdom deposit within us, we'll get asked. And then we can respond with gentleness and respect. Go, here's what Jesus has done to me. It's really cool. You want to talk about it? Because again, remember, God isn't anti-knowledge. He's anti-false knowledge. Because on planet death, there's going to be a ton of false knowledge that's going to always be available. And unfortunately, as Paul says here, it has led many to fall away from the faith. Now, we are sitting currently in a unique time in American history where there is a record number of individuals who have been de-churching from the Christian church in America, leaving the church for either reasons of convenience, because of church hurt, or because of crisis of faith. And each of these important categories represent unique stories. And perhaps you're here tonight and you fall into one or more of those categories. Now the church, the church has to own has much to own for, which is absolutely what we have unpacked and can, will continue to unpack into the future. But in light of this passage, there's one of those pieces that I think is worth noting, that the church has not done a great job, not 
only this way, but one of the ways over the last few decades of not equipping the church on how to guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. We are meant to be equipped as saints to how to not avoid the difficult passages of Scripture. Instead, to press in with questions into the difficult and discover how God's beauty is present even in pages that you kind of wish weren't there. To be equipped to know how to interact with one another in grace and truth. Asking good questions to one another when we are expressing doubts instead of responding in judgment or just brushing off those questions is ridiculous. Being equipped into how, how to study the scriptures well and wisely for yourself, that you can grow in deeper love and understanding of who Jesus is. And by God's grace, this is what, as a community, we have endeavored to push into over the last 11 years. And we'll continue to do this in spaces of discipleship and community. Most recently, most recent rhythm is this is why we have structured our twice a month Bible studies the way that we have been structuring them. So that you're not just being taught what's in the Bible, you're learning how to study it for yourself. This is why we're launching community groups twice a month and they start in next week. So that you would have a space with other believers to be able to process and just see what conversations might come up as you're just playing a game together or as you are coming together for a communion meal. And by God's grace, we're going to continue to grow in this as a community and as we, and as we separate apart from one another throughout the rest of our weeks so that we would learn together and as individuals how to guard the deposit that's been entrusted to you. Because this deposit is really, really good, guys. And it's so beautiful and it's worth guarding from any scheme of the enemy. Now, we've covered a lot. And if you're with me, it sounds like there's a lot of things you and I need to do. This might sound like a bird. It might sound like a great difficulty. You might be thinking, great, am I supposed to go, like, go get a doctor in apologetics now? I don't know. Do I need to go take seminary classes? Do I, do I, like, what do I need to do? And what you need to do is remember this first and foremost. In fact, I like the way that Paul phrases it to finish off this letter. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Grace be with you. Here's what's interesting about this phrase. This is a personal letter that was written from Paul to Timothy, right? And he's supposed to take this and then go use it to shepherd the church that he's been entrusted with. And so every time the word you has been used so far in this letter, it's, a sing it's in Greek, it is a singular word, meaning you, as in Paul, me, writing to you, Timothy. Okay? Singular. But this time, it's not the same word. It's a plural word. You, all, y'all. So what he's saying, he's saying, grace be with y'all. Grace be with all of you. Not just Timothy, who is the first person to read this, but to all who would come after and read this, grace be with y'all. Because everyone who would hear this letter from Timothy to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Spain, to the church in New England, to 
those of us who are sitting in this room tonight, we cannot possibly love well, guard well, or even have faith well on our own terms. You don't have enough discipline. You're not good enough. But God's grace is. So grace be with you, Timothy. Grace be with you, church in Ephesus. Grace be with you, Mosaic at WDW. Grace be with you that you may walk through life on planet death, holding securely on to your kingdom deposit until the day that your deposit is exchanged for the full value of the kingdom of life, light, and freedom, where your faith has become sight. And King Jesus sits on the throne forevermore, and there is no sin, nor sadness, no chaos, no disease, no death, because all the corruption has been dealt with. And all that is left is light, life, freedom. So this is letter first Timothy. What a joy that we've been able to go through. It is a divine call for you and I tonight to rest in the grace that God might work wonderfully in us, to empower us to guard our kingdom deposit so that we may aim our lives towards his divine biblical love. I want to invite the band to come on up. And I realize, and what, what I'd love for us to do is just to take a few minutes to pray prayers of thanksgiving for what we have discovered through this letter. Now, maybe this is your first time that you sat in this room or you kind of were hit or miss throughout this series or whatever. And so what I want to invite us into is a time of thanksgiving. You just pray by yourself. Prayers of thanksgiving. The reality is I, I, I know if your life's anything like mine, that this last week might have been really, really hard. It might have been a thousand little things that were not ideal. You might have experienced just constant frustration or depression or anxiety. And all those things are important to bring before God and lament over. But we still have an opportunity to celebrate him to give prayers of thanksgiving when our life is well and when it is not, because it is well with our soul, because we have a kingdom deposit. So I want to invite us right now to spend a couple minutes just simply sitting in our seats and just praying to God, talk with him about whatever is going on in your life. It's something that God has revealed to you in this letter as we have gone through over the last few months. Pray prayers of thanksgiving for that. If there's something that God has been working in your heart, in your mind, or in your life, give him prayers of thanksgiving for that. Because he is the one who is doing the heavy lifting. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for what you have taught me through this letter for all the beautiful reminders of your love and your faithfulness and your kindness towards us. I thank you for all the new discoveries that I have gotten to hear in this letter. Lord, I pray out of thanksgiving and gratitude for what you are doing in the lives and mind of all of us here tonight. That for those who know you, you are drawing us deeper into community with you. That for those of us here tonight who don't know you, 
that your love is lavished on them. And your desire is to draw them near to you. Thank you, God. Thank you. You're good, kind, and faithful. So we celebrate you tonight because you speak to us. And it's beyond what we could deserve, but it's everything we need to guard the deposit and trust the dust. We love you.